from Northern Stage. This is Within the Wall. I'm James Whitman. Be aware, this episode features some adult language and references to Ireland's Magdalen laundries. Tom Collins House is a sheltered housing scheme in the Biker Wall run by Carbon Homes. Every Friday, the residents have a coffee morning where I met Eric Patterson. Like Olya from episode one, Eric is a great storyteller, plus he has a squaddy's sense of humour. For instance, when I was setting up for our first interview, I asked him what he'd had for breakfast. I had one gabapentin for my blood pressure, uh, sorry, for my back pain, because I have a fractured spine, believe it or not. Yeah, I've had one glycandipine for my blood pressure. I had one astrovastatin for my cholesterol. And one ramipiril tablet. That's what they're called. Something like that anyway. And because I have to wait for at least an hour before I can eat. And that's what I've had for my breakfast so far. Oh, no yeah, yeah. Eric grew up in Newcastle in the 50s and 60s. His father was a drayman, and Eric remembers well how tough times were then. Well, my, my childhood was like everybody else's, rough and ready. I mean, we had one great coat between three were on the bed. That was the blanket in a bed that was never dry. You know, I'm not embarrassed about it. It was one of them. One of the reasons why I joined the army. Yeah? Okay. Well, you couldn't take his girlfriend home. She couldn't stop the night. And in them days, you know what I mean? You started early, didn't you? Yeah. I'd outlived the nightclubs in Newcastle by the time I joined the army at Nightingale. That includes the Mayfair, Oxford galleries, the Dulcie, Changes. I could rent them all. I think I knew every street in Newcastle in them days. I don't now, but that's the way it was. I met Eric's partner, Marion, a couple of weeks later. She told me there was a bit more to him joining the army than cramped living conditions. It was all part of growing up and you had to get money from somewhere and the bottom line was the easiest way to get it was to nick something and take it to the scrapyard and flog it. I can honestly say I did my 11 plus but I didn't pass it but I still went to grammar school and I nicked all the lead off their roof. Me and Huey, we did all sorts. Have you heard of a place called Seg Hill? Well, it's just the other side along Benton, on the way to Shiremoor. There used to be a colliery there, and they closed it down. And that was the one and only time I got caught nicking lead, because we were up on this glass roof, and all the glass was held in with the lead. So I just peeled it off and peeled it off, and carried whatever we could for miles and miles and miles. And that's when we got caught. That's when I got my first two years probation. Ah, but the magistrate was my old school headmaster. Yeah. Mr. Jamison, a twat. Yeah. My father hated him, so did I. So eventually, you leave school, don't you, and you get jobs, and Christ, I had that many jobs. And I thought, I'm going nowhere here. And me and my mate were working in the... Turks Head Hotel in Newcastle, which is not there anymore, but it was the big hotel. 
and he got caught nicking some of the tabs off from behind one of the bars. So he got sacked and I packed it in and that was it. But I'd already been told by Jamison if he ever saw me again he was putting me in jail so I joined the army and the rest is history. And did Huey sign up with you? No, no, he, he got sent to him. Oh really? Yeah, he got sent to Medemsley, which is notorious and he got abused like you wouldn't believe. Where is it's in near Consett in County Durham. It was a postal, yeah. naughty boy's home, and he was well and truly abused. He was never the same person when he came out. Right. Never, ever, ever, till the day he died. While Eric's friend Huey fell foul of England's notorious postal system, Eric found life in the army was tough too. You're never prepared for what's going to happen. That's for sure. You can have the best advice in the world. But until you actually get onto that parade square and start your running and training. Let me tell you, my first day in the army, I spent my first night in jail. A kid he called Andy Scortis, I'll never forget him as long as I live. Turned out to be a good friend of mine. But he was from London, he was a cockney. And he'd been in Catrick a week or so, waiting for the rest of us to form an intake. And he says to me, oh, Geordie, are you? I said, aye. He said, come on and let me introduce you to running water. That was the first time I'd punched a cockney. He beat seven bells of shit out of me. He did, he was only that high. Jesus Christ. So they put me in the port before the night, yeah. And him, next cell, yeah. And the next day we shook hands and got on with it. It was the hardest week I'd ever had in my life. But I wouldn't give in. And then the second week, the third week, and it went on for 12 weeks. So, to cut a very long story short, they knock you down till you're smaller than that and underground for about ten weeks, and then they build you up for the last two weeks before you pass out as a soldier. That really was tough. After basic training, however, Eric thrived in the army. And it turns out, his time running away from the palace in Newcastle served him well. I think it was me upbringing. Well, the coppers couldn't catch me, and neither could the PTIs, the physical training instructors for the army. How long can you keep that up for? I said, how long have we got, type thing, all day at this pace? Yeah. Well, I could shift. And I had stamina. Yeah. The PTI once said, in, in, on the trainees, do you think you could keep that pace up back to camp? This was on a 10-mile bash. I said, easy. He said, right, then. I'll bet you a couple of pints you can't. I said, I'll bet you a couple of pints I can't. Yeah. I beat him hands over fist. Well, there's beer involved, I'm not going to lose. <laughs> Definitely not. Yeah. One of the footballers said to me, he said, you know, you're the fastest person over five yards I've ever come across. And it's that initial five getting away from, from the tackle. But I actually played against Kevin Keegan. He was playing for Hamburg in Germany. And I played for the, the Deutsche Volksbank. Yeah, it was just a few German lads and a few English lads got together and they were in the, in the league. Me and my mate changed term. The local football team was called Erdogan, Bayer Erdogan. Yeah. So we got invited down to there when they were playing Hamburg. Yeah. It was just a kickabout. And I heard Keegan talking and he heard me and Ginge. Obviously, he recognised that we were English and when you come across, hello, blah, 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 blah. I said, I'm going to slaughter you this afternoon. Do you know something? 
I could not get anywhere near him. And I thought I was fit. <laughs> Everybody thought I was fit. Me and Ginge between us couldn't get near him. Like that, we hit each other. He was just, just gone. Keegan was just gone. Fantastic. Only 20 minutes or so, you know what I mean? But yeah, yeah. <laughs> Eric served in lots of places throughout his career, but his fondest memories are of his time in Germany. Did seven years in Germany before the war came down. What was that like? How do I put it to you? Where I come from in Gosforth, Tintown, Grange Estate. I wouldn't say it was run down, nice council estate, but um, I hadn't been anywhere apart from Catrick Camp. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And I just couldn't believe how the other half lived. Right. Pristine, clean. And this was in a place called RAF Wildenrath. It was my first post. Well, I was in the army. I was attached to the Royal Air Force. And my first four years in Germany, that's where I was. And then I spent three years working with the Belgiques and the Germans and the Americans in a place called Krefeld near Mönchengladbach. So I know... North Rhine-Westphalia, which is the area, pretty well. I mean, I could rhyme the towns off now. Dortmund, Bielefeld, Gutterslip, Hanover. I've been in war. I got lost in one or two of them, that's for sure. <laughs> I lost an army Land Rover in Bielefeld. Talk me through this moment. How do you lose a Land Rover? Well, I forgot where I parked it. It's Because you're looking around the city centre, looking for a gap, for want of a better phrase, and then you get pissed. Yeah, where's the wagon? That's what we call them, wagons. Where's the wagon? I don't know, you parked it. We were just sitting in the back. Was this a town you'd spent a lot of time in? or I hadn't been there at all. It was just a day out from Guttersloe to Bielefeld, which is about 40 minutes drive. So were you like the designated driver then? No, I was the troop sergeant. I was in charge of discipline. God knows how. <laughs> I do not know how. My first stripe... I can assure you, the RSM said to me, put that on the blue tack. <laughs> After he'd served for 20 years, Eric left military life behind. But like many, he found Civvy Street took a little adjusting to. I'll tell you the truth. I found it quite tough. I was never treated as badly in the forces as I was when I came out. When I came out of the army, I lived in Birmingham, in the royal town of Sutton Coalfield, who think they're so upmarket. And I bought myself a nice masonette, and what have you. Had a couple of kiddies there. To start with, I formed my own business, my own maintenance company, with a mate of mine, who I found out after 12 and a half months that he was robbing me blind, so I put the block on her lot. And then I worked in a factory where I was treated like, like everybody else. Big car industry in the Midlands, you know, that Land Rover, Jaguar and what have you. Yeah. Well, the company I worked for was called Clevedon Fastness, and they made all, for want of a better phrase, rivets. That's when I learned that you've got white-collar workers, blue-collar workers, and the rest of the shit. It was worse than being in the military. At least in the military, you've got a badge of rank, and you knew who was who. It was doggy dog in that factory. So I decided I'd had enough, and I'd got a HGV. So I then went lorry driving. I never looked back after that. I delivered milk 
collected it in a tanker from the Forest of Dean in Gloucestershire on the Hereford border. Took it to the factory in Perrybor in Birmingham. It got processed or processed, whatever you like to call it. And I took it back for the dairyman to deliver the following week. And then I got made redundant because the co-op took it over the wankers. <laughs> you know, having more dairy, Irish dairy, fantastic company. Yeah. They really loved it. And then I worked for various companies, XL Logistics, DHL, Blue Arrow, things that you, you, you've never heard of them because they've gone now. They've, they've yeah. all gone. And that was it. And I took early retirement because after 20 years in the army, you're entitled to a certain amount of money when you turn 55. So I said to the missus at the time, who's moving here next week? Believe it or not, yeah, that's it. My 55th birthday, I'll give it. No more. I'm not getting out of bed. I'm working 15, 16 hours a day. Funnel. I didn't need to. And to this day, I don't need to. I'll, I'll never work. Simple as that. I met Eric again a couple of weeks after our first interview, once Marion had moved into Tom Collins' house. Like the old Four Yorkshiremen sketch, Marion told me Eric had it easy growing up in Newcastle. But that, that just shows you how tough times were. Yeah. And he thinks it came from a big family. Yeah. <laughs> ah, exactly. I'm one of ten children, and I had to share a bedroom with five sisters. That's no word of a lie. What sort of age gap was there between you? Most of us, uh, 18 months, 12 to 18 months. Yeah. Because my mum had been catnip. Outside toilet. If you had one. Chickens running around the garden. Let your mum run the neck for Sunday dinner. Or really? Easter time. Yeah. Or next, yeah. Door's, or next door's rabbit. <laughs> or and my, as my older sister, who's <laughs> 70 <laughs> now, she had... What was it, Jordan? She called me Jordy. It was, it was a turkey. And she thought it was her best friend. And mum wrung its neck for Christmas. And she always, she always used to say it's my mum. And she's 70 now, my older sister. <laughs> yeah. You ran my best friend's neck. <laughs> like Eric, Marion had a life-changing run-in with the law at a young age. I came to the Midlands in 1973 with a friend that I worked with. We stayed with an uncle of hers on a place called Castlevale. It's one of the roughest parts. It's high-rise buildings it similar to this. It was really, really, really like old Scotswood Road with the, the tall flats. And yeah, what, I and that's Notorious. I only came away for two weeks holiday. That's what I told my mum and dad. After the two weeks holiday, went back on the night ferry, got home, and my mum wasn't there. And I asked, where was my mum? Well, it was my ma then. I called her ma. Where's your mum? Where does she usually be on a Saturday? She's in the hairdressers, getting her hair done. Because her and dad was the one night of the week they went down. Now, both of my parents never drank. They used to go to the picture house or to the theatre. Okay, I'll wait till she gets back. I did. Blah, blah, blah. How are you? How was your trip? And stuff like that. And I said, um, can I go back? If you've got a job, yeah. And did you have a job? I had the following week when I went back. <laughs> I did. Did you know that that's what you were going to do when you went for the first time for the two yeah. weeks? Yeah. Yeah. Being a Catholic, 
now brought up a Catholic strict, taught by the nuns and that. I had a boyfriend, my very first boyfriend. Didn't know a lot about him. And there was six of us, three lads and the three girls, and we went into Dublin City for a drink. And we had a really good night. But we didn't know, coming home, they'd nicked the car there. And the police stopped the car, chased the car. With you in it? All of us, yeah. So I got stuck in the nick for one night and I'd lost one of my shoes. So your Cinderella story. So Sunday morning I had to go home. When they let me out, I was petrified in the jail that night. It was when there were only little police stations, but they had a cell. I got home and I had to tell, Mm. I did. And then just after Sunday dinner, I was marched down to the church by my mum and dad. Right. To the priest, because I was a bad girl. And that priest terrified the life out of me. Said, you do anything again, you're going away. And how old were you then? 16. Can you imagine that happening here? Can you imagine your mother and father marching you doing to the priest Harrowing? <laughs> they did. They did. They did, though, because the religion was law. So I behaved myself. And then I said, Can I go away on holiday with my friend for two weeks? Yeah, are you going to be all right? Yeah, behave yourself. And I went back after the two weeks and I said, Can I go back? Because I was terrified. I was terrified, absolutely terrified. Yes, if you got a job, I had a job the following week in a pub. Both of us did. And then I got a full-time job two weeks later. And I only went back once a year. I love visiting my sisters and my brothers because my parents have passed away. But would I live there? No. The last of Ireland's Magdalene laundries closed in the mid-90s. It is estimated that some 30,000 women were confined in these institutions, often indefinitely, where they served as a free labour force and suffered a variety of abuses. Marion's terror of these places was well-founded. Yeah, but they would have done it. That's why Ireland government is paying out thousands now right. to the young girls that they put in the laundries, because that's where I would have ended up. It's been all over the news for years. And the nuns were evil. The and I mean, they were them. evil to them. They hardly fed them. They... Like I said, they had straps, even when I went to school. Then we used to have to wear ankle white socks in the summer, and then we'd have to wear white socks up to your knee in the winter. And like all kids, it happens even today, the elastic goes, don't they? So your socks fall down. So you'd be walking down the corridor, and then you'd just whack across the back of your legs, either with the leather strap or the stick, your socks. If you were walking down the street and... You'd see a priest or a nun coming up on the other side, on the opposite side. You'd either turn around and you'd sometimes you'd say to yourself, oh, I forgot to get that in the shop, and you'd go back and you'd hold you'd, till they'd gone past. And the head nun, she was called Sister Column Kill. And when I had my first child, my daughter, my mum and dad come to visit me to see their new grandchild. And she gave me an envelope. And she meant that's a present of Sister Column Kill. Did you rip it up? Them days, it was like a rosette, but a picture of Christ in the middle. I think they're still done to this day in Ireland. And you hung it on the baby's pram to keep them safe. The irony of such an abusive system promising to keep children safe was not lost on Marion 
but she agrees with Eric that the toughness of their childhoods is something they bonded over. I asked them how they first met. You want the truth? <laughs> yeah. It is the truth. Yeah. And nothing but the truth. So yeah. We met on the internet. Yeah. yeah? Yeah. On a dating site. We did. Which is simple as that. Yeah. And go and tell him about when the first time I went to meet you. Oh, no. <laughs> go and tell him. <laughs> this was in Birmingham, by the way. Well, near Birmingham. I lived in Sutton Coldfield, and Marion lived in Tamworth. And we met in a pub called The White Horse. Oh, I said, would you like something to eat? You know, like no, we met before that, because it was a summer's evening, and I had a drink with you. We sat in the garden, and then we went to the place for the meal. Yeah, mm. well, yes. Yeah. So we went to get something to eat, to have the soup. It was cold, so she sent it back. It was still cold or something, wasn't it? And then the waitress fetched it back again. And I still couldn't eat it. The chef put it in through the microwave, it should be hot. I'm not eating that. <laughs> so he went to another pub. Which he didn't like what I had. And we went to another pub. What were you thinking at this point? Thinking of oh, I don't know. We just found it so funny. Yeah, we I, did. Ju- I just thought, oh. We weren't angry or it. anything like that. We just found it so funny. Well, there was that, that many pubs around the area, on the canal, hmm? yeah, hmm. where we were. I th- and I said to her, I said, right, there's one more down the road. Yeah. We'll get the dog and doublet we'll get some yeah, in there it's a nice boozer so we went in there got a pint and whatever she wanted can I have this and can I have that so the kitchen's closed and oh for fuck's sake I'd pack the peanuts that's it that was our first date that's what know. I got to eat all that day and not eat the pack of the peanuts <laughs> <laughs> and I can't touch peanuts now, I've got an allergy to them. <laughs> Six months later, Eric and Marion were living together and ready for their first holiday as a couple. He said, my mate's got a place in Wales, shall yeah. we go for the weekend? Lovely cottage. Well, beautiful, I mean, beautiful cottage. Have you heard of, I mean, the old Lawrence Llewellyn. He used to own this cottage. It cannot be seen from any direction except the air. You would never know to look at the building, just what was inside this place. Well, right? it was in three acres of land. Well, we had to turn the water on first. Yeah. Well, the water was fed from a spring. Oh, what a performance. <laughs> this was our first time together, if you know what I mean. But to get the water on, you had to go down this field and shake this pipe and God knows what of it. But it wasn't really a field, it was a bug. In, in the garage, <laughs> in, the, in the shed, there was about ten sets of wellies from Lee and his family. I said to Marie, I said, find yourself a pair of wellies that fit you. Because we have to go down there. And she looked at me, and I said to myself, if she doesn't put a pair of wellies on, we're not going nowhere, because I'm outdoors. You know what I mean? I'm that kind of guy. But she did put the wellies. And then we went to find this pipe, and on the way back, she got stuck in the mud. And you know when mud, and you can't... Like quicksand. And it's just pulling you in and pulling you in. Yeah. (laughs) We were laughing, but at the same time, we were a bit scared. Because you could, you could shout forever, nobody hear you, because you're in the middle of nowhere, surrounded by... No, no phone just, signal. No, no phone nothing. signal, no nothing. You're <laughs> knackered. So anyway, I eventually got a route, the mud and the wellies. Yeah. But now and again, when we have a bit of a dude, oh, I said, I wish I'd left you in that fucking mud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
We did have some brilliant times there, didn't we? Yeah. And then sometimes the farmers' cows would get out. You'd you, you see nothing like this. Part of the land was, was an orchard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the cattle used to graze above the, the cottage in, in a separate field. Well, it was the end of the uh, apple season, so we were looking at September, October time of when, course, when we were there. There's loads of apples on the ground. On the ground, yeah. yeah. Well, the cows got out and they came down. I've seen nothing like it. They were about. drunk on the apples. Oh, yeah, and we had a shogun. Yeah, you know the Mitsubishi shogun? The mm-hmm. Jeep thing? Well, there must have been a hundred of these things. And they were as drunk as farts, these cows. But they were banging up and, uh, against yes. the cottage door. And I went, if that thing bangs the window, they'll be in here. I was terrified. They were licking was, the, the, lick the shogun we clean. Laughing. Yeah, we were laughing their socks off. We well, I was petrified. Any road, they eventually moved round to another side of the cottage. Yeah. And I run like hell to the gate. Yeah. Yeah. Because I couldn't get in the, in the jeep. I didn't have time to open the gate and get the jeep out. Yeah. Because further down the track, you could get a phone signal. And in desperation, I just phoned the operator. I said, look, I'm in a place called Pant Farm, and I don't know whose cattle they are, but they've got into my mate. I said, I've rented the cottage for the weekend. I haven't got a clue what to do. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, the, the cows are the drunk on apples in this operator. They were. It was a bloke, and he was laughing his socks off. And what? they were scary, weren't they? And he wrote eventually, after about three hours, the farmer comes up with his mates for half. <laughs> I don't know what he spoke, it was in Welsh, but I'm sure he said you're stupid, Jordan Twat. <laughs> Marion retired just a couple of weeks before moving to Newcastle. I asked her how she was finding life within the wall. I love up here. I used to love coming up to see your mum, didn't I? Yeah. yeah. But it's like I said to some of them ladies downstairs. They don't realise what they've got on their doorstep. They don't. I mean, it takes us five minutes to go to the supermarket, doesn't it? Now, here's another point. I've had the same doctor since I was pregnant with my children. And everything went, as we all know, when COVID came. But then I could always phone up and get an appointment. If not that day, I'd get it one or two days later. Since COVID, trying to get a doctor's appointment is horrendous. It is. But where I lived, trying to get a bus was even worse. Once right. a week. I have my Staffordshire bus pass yeah. and I've never been able to use it because there wasn't a bus that came up my street. There should have been every hour, but they might turn up every two hours or three hours. So I used to walk into town, get my groceries, and if I didn't have a lot, I'd walk back up the canal because the cottage I rented was onto the canal. Or I'd just pop in my daughters, who live quite near the town. And since I come up here, I can go on a bus three, four, five times a day here and just use my bus pass. Just silly things like that. I registered with the same doctor as Eric because I had a priority list for when I came up here. I said, I need a doctor's, a dentist, I need a hairdresser's, stuff like that. Because I have food allergies. And not only that, you never know when you need a doctor. So he said, register with mine. So I registered, didn't I? And I think I'm having, or almost finished it now, as I call a full MOT, and I've only been here a month. And they're so lovely to people. They make you very welcome. And she even said to me, the clinician, don't you worry about nothing, she said. We will get you sorted. 
And not only that, this is how good the people are here, like a community trust. I've had help of them in the past, or advice, should I say. So I said to Marion, you're retired now, and the only income you've got is your pension. And the government You may well that. be entitled to other things, but I don't know what they are. Cut a long story short, we got on the Baker Community Trust, the Money's Matters team, who came to see Marion yesterday. Yesterday. Now, without going into all the detail, the offshoot is they've saved Marion a fortune. Now, if <laughs> I was where I'd been living, you know, no I would have to go and find out where I'd have to go and then probably have an appointment and wait for an appointment to come through to me. Mm. They came to my flat next door. Eric and Marion showed me round her new apartment, and they were both full of praise for Tom Collins' house. There's a good community in here. You want to see it on a Monday evening? They get 30, 40 people down there for bingo. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, and they, co they come from all over. The coffee mornings are fun. You see, when I first come here, I thought, oh, coffee mornings, that's a bit old hat. <laughs> but it's not. Every single one of them is a character. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, every single one-man jack. Yeah. It's not... Just a coffee morning, we put money into the savings club, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. And they hang on to it for Christmas and stuff like that. And then, like, where is it? At this point, Marion looked around for a calendar. People's birthdays and what have you. It's everybody's birthdays. Oh, in so the coffee club. In yeah. the coffee club. That's really cool. They're looking out for each other. That's like, what I meant. That's I, I call that community spirit. Yeah, yes. like, so yeah. everybody has a beta card off somebody else and if they've no family or anything that's lovely isn't yeah, it yeah that can matter a lot can't yeah it? i think yeah. that makes a big big difference to the yeah, yeah, yeah. you know just an ordinary day in the month gestures like these are what make bikers such a remarkable and resilient community whether it's a birthday card from a new neighbor a terrible dad joke over a jigsaw puzzle a walk in the wind at northumberlandia or a story shared for the hundredth time with a cousin Biker is the sum of all these individual acts of kindness and kinship. After an hour or so of chatting with Marion, she asked me if I enjoy what I do. And honestly, I've enjoyed meeting everyone in Biker so much, it feels wrong to call it work. One thing's for sure, I'm looking forward to going back within the wall. Within the Wall was produced by James Whitman as part of a reInvent residency with Northern Stage. In this episode, you heard the voices of Eric Patterson and Marion Cole and some lo-fi beats by Coma Studio.